Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. We begin with this study from the University of Cincinnati. Something really simple, it's tasty, that we really benefit from, strawberries. New research from the University of Cincinnati found that daily strawberry consumption, I would say a cup, you could eat them in a, you know, the way you would normally eat just a piece of fruit, or you could juice them, put them in a smoothie. But do that on a daily basis, and it can reduce your risk of dementia, especially if you're middle-aged, like 35 to 40, all right? And by the way, blueberries do the same thing. So strawberries or blueberries contain what are called anthocyanidins, A-N-T-H-O-C-Y-A-N-I-N-S. And those really are powerful for metabolic function, to help prevent diabetes, or if you have it, to help you with it, and cognitive enhancement. And this was done at the University of Medicine's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience. So that's simple, that easy, and it really helps people who are overweight. And next up, from the Institute of Biophysics at the Chinese Academy of Science, goji. Remember the goji berry, the little red berry? comes dried, you soak it in water, then you put it into your smoothies or put it into oatmeal, whatever you want. It's really good. Gojis have a chemical in it called nerinogenin, and that enhances muscle endurance and improves the ability not to be muscle atrophied. As we age, our body begins to shrink in muscle and bone. Both of those can be prevented and reversed. One of the things I suggest to people is before you do some muscle workout, have some branched amino acids, generally around five capsules and uh, or a teaspoon of powder. Then work out. Now all of us have seen when you work out, let's say you're doing curls or pull-ups, your triceps and biceps expand. An hour later, they're back. But that won't be the case if you have the branched chain amino acids that go into the cell once the protoplasm is expanding. It becomes a part of it, and therefore you're improving overall and adding to muscle density. But the goji goes one step further. It helps with energy metabolism. And uh, you want your skeletal muscle that plays an extremely important role in supporting movement and energy metabolism to be strong. And that can help that whole process. It also increases endurance as well. So, something that simple, goji berries. Again, we're dealing with single items having profound effect, especially as you age. Because what do I see in a lot of people? Especially in the people who've been in our anti-aging studies, who are older, let's say 50 and older, they have loss of muscle, loss of strength, endurance, stamina, balance, coordination. They lose that. That's not normal. So you can reverse it. Also, I found that this is an interesting thing, and I, and I hear this a lot. Oh, Gary, uh, you going to do any more dance parties? And I say, yeah, when I come back to the city, I intend to have a dance party. I've done over 50 of them. Uh, over around 65,000 people have attended them over the decades, starting in 1985. Before that, I had dinner parties. Remember those? Well, I'd like to hear from someone that was back in the 1970s and early 80s when I would take over uh, a restaurant and we'd have a thousand people there. Out on Long Island, took over uh, a restaurant and then everybody had to call to make a reservation. <laughs> the guy had 2,000 reservations. So he got the permission from the people who owned the shopping center to have all the table. He rented tables. We had a whole parking lot. And People Magazine came and, and did a four-page, really positive article spread on that. And, uh, and here were all these wonderful people. What I remember most was here were all these mothers with their daughters. I'll never forget that. Gary, I want you to meet my daughter. Now, I'm a young guy and a single, and uh, I'm thinking, 
wow, <laughs> look at all these people. I was just overwhelmed by the people. And then we had great food, vegan food. It was just a wonderful time to socialize and meet. And then the running club, thousands, tens of thousands of people came to the running clubs over the years, and we still have the running club today. But then what happens is you go through a transition in life. Okay, you did your marathon and maybe two or three, and you say, okay, that was a major achievement. I put it behind me. It showed me if I can do a marathon, I can do anything. And uh, I was disciplined, and I did it. Good for you. And I socialized, and a lot of, by the way, a lot of people got into great relationships, got married from meeting other people in the running club, which is one of the reasons I'm sure many people came to socialize. And, uh, and that's fine. A lot of people came to be elite athletes who are not, and they became elite athletes. And that's a whole separate story of all the great things we did. We traveled all over the world to do the first marathon in London and, and Mon Montreal and Paris and Rome. And just those trips and the camaraderie of having like 50 to 60 people, all, all in the same rhythm of life. Vegans into health, doing something. And we never ran a marathon to race it except one. Uh, we ran it as a party to celebrate having gotten to where we could do a marathon with ease. Every single person that we ever did a marathon with finished without injury. That's saying something. That's like over 30,000 people. In any case, but then you find out in time, people, you stop saying them. They're coming to the training because they've done it. They go on with another part of their life. And then you start seeing these different journeys people take, different passages with different people in them, different interests. But then what I'm saying is this. Today, and probably for the last 10 years, because of all that we've been going through, with all the identity politics and critical race theory and wokeism and cancel culture and all the, the tribalism and the balkanization of our society be those in power, you see people just kind of becoming apathetic. They don't know what to believe. They don't know what to do. Uh, they, uh, they, they trusted people and institutions and leaders they shouldn't have, and now they're realizing it. And that gives them a great disappointment. In fact, recently, at our retreat, um, which was wonderful, such nice people, I mean, really nice people, and it gives me a chance to meet other people, and it gives them a chance to meet other people from all over the world to come. But I limit the numbers so everyone has time and without crowding. And I ask this question. Be completely honest with me. How many years of your life do you believe you wasted in the wrong relationships? And I got people saying anything from 10 to 45 years of their life wasted. To give you an example, what happens when people are living their lives with fulfillment in every area. Their careers are good, their relationships are fun, and, and there's a sense of spontaneity and newness. They rejuvenate, they have good ideas, they do things together, and they don't burden the other person with the dark side of their being. They try to share the best of themselves with each other. Those are wonderful relationships, and we all should be blessed to have those. But unfortunately, most people don't. Why? And this can lead to loneliness. This University of Arizona study about researchers are showing that there's a relationship between loneliness and being alone. And uh, let's face it, we have a world filled with stresses and, and changes. People are being forced to change today as never before in our history. And people who had solid jobs and good incomes and quality of life are now being challenged. And uh, people who were, were thinking that, you know, the future was bright now don't have the same, same optimism because of how toxic our culture has become, how many people are fighting one another, how tribal we've become, how balkanized we've become. In any case, so you've got a part of your life during the 19... 70s and 80s or 90s, where you're doing things like marathons or with my audience, doing a lot of stuff together, having a lot of fun, uh, retreats, just, just being able to grow and share. 
with like-minded people. And now you've done that. You say, okay, I did that part. I know enough about health. I don't need any reinforcement. You go on with your life. And then you have new venues, maybe new relationships, maybe new challenges and careers. And then one day, your kids are gone. They're on their own now. You no longer have that relationship. Or maybe you do, but there's no fulfillment in it. So I ask the people to retreat this question. Now these are people of all ages, from someone 27 to someone 94. 94. How, if you're being completely honest, how many years of your life do you feel you wasted in the wrong relationship? Don't blame them or you, just, just this was the wrong relationship and let it go at that. Well, I heard and everyone said something like six years was the youngest person and then 45 years was the oldest amount of time. 45 years in the wrong relationship? Then how much of your other interests and joys and challenges and wanting to be creative in different ways were missed because you were in the wrong relationship? Or had you been in the right relationship, every 24 hours been filled with something positive or something at least that you could share instead of just tolerance of one another. Tolerance is not just, it's something we shouldn't just say, well, better the devil I know than the devil I don't know. And so as a result, a person is lonely in a relationship or lonely in an environment where people are not accepting them or doing things with them to encourage growth. The simple answer is this. I'm finding people now we're reaching out to me. We're saying, boy, when you come back to New York, we, can you do another dance party? So I ask, why? Yeah, I'm going to, because they were great. They were so much fun. And the answer is, well, because I don't do any, there's no place to go dancing now. There's no more disco. And, and, uh, and now I'm free, and I'm 40 years old, or I'm 45, and I don't know where to go to mix, and I don't want to be on one of these dating sites because they're all phony. And I'm thinking, wow, so that's a person who's alone, except for maybe work and family, but is lonely. Okay, one step, and I'm going to do a whole webinar on this, a whole day in the near future on a weekend for those who are interested in how never to be lonely, never to be sad or depressed or anxious, except for when something happens that it we should be, you know, uh, concerned, loss of a loved one or pet, etc. But how to get through all the issues of life and come out stronger and better and healthier. Because for every negative, you can find some good lesson to learn from something negative. And uh, here's one way we can go through our day by being alone, but not being lonely. Plan a day that has meaningfulness. That means don't watch television at all. Stay off the computer. Stay off the cell phones. And plan a day that you are the architect. That you're doing things that help you grow intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, physically, environmentally, and help your community. Be creative. Find tools that you can learn and use to make that day better. But always keep looking for examples that force you to go one step higher than you would otherwise. Like when I wake up in the morning, I make my bed and see if I can bounce a quarter on it. Why would I do that? I'm the only person sleeping in that bed because I'm going to make sure that everything I do today represents a higher standard. Because otherwise, you're going to forget about your standards, your health. Oh, so I'll eat a pizza. Oh, so I'll have some alcohol. Oh, so I'll watch you know, porn. Oh, so I'll do this. Why? Why would you do that? None of that is constructive. That's going to take you from a higher point to a lower point. And guess what you're going to feel at that lower point? You're going to feel apathy. You're going to feel disgust. You're going to start self-loathing. Woe is me. So 
anyone can be susceptible of that based upon external circumstances. So why not simply everything you do, try to make this day important and look around for examples. And there's lots of examples of this wonderful country we live in, of wonderful people who say, well, if they can do that, I can do it. All right? And then just, that's how you live a day. Well, guess what? There's no room for loneliness in there. There's no room for self-pity. There's no room for feeling bad. You're feeling good about the day. just want to share that with you. Because a lot of people in our society, I mean a lot of people, suffer from loneliness. And that brings your whole immune system down, and that creates apathy, and that creates depression and anxiety, and that creates, that creates this cycle. And it's difficult for a lot of people to get out of that cycle because they're blaming the, all the problems in the world and what they can no longer have control over. So just something to think about, all right? A Harvard study says stop drinking those low-fat milks because they're not good for you because they're loaded with sugar. And this was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics that showed that conventional milk and dairy products to be detrimental to human health due to the added health-compromising sweeteners. Good for you. I'm sorry it took so long for you to figure out what the rest of us have known a long time. Go one step further. Do we actually need milk? And the answer is no. We need no dairy to create strong bones and healthy, a healthy biochemistry. Eat kale. Eat collard greens, eat Swiss, Swiss chard, watercress, eat seaweed. You can get all the calcium, magnesium you need and better used. And finally, from Frederick Alexander University in Germany and the Auburn University, zinc plus any product that contains a plant phenols like chocolate, right, can help oxidative stress. Now, why do we age prematurely? Why do some of us at 50 look 30 and others at 50 look 70? Because of oxidative stress. Smoking, drinking, those are the obvious ones. Eating meat, stress, stress is the big one. And stress can really prematurely age you. So we're two ages. We're our chronological age and our biological age. Your biological age can be much younger than your chronological age but you've got to combat oxidative stress. And to do that, you have to be able to put all these pieces of the puzzle together. If you just put a few pieces, well, I take this product or I do this, but what about the other 50 things you could do? Well, I don't do that. Well, you have to. The more you do, the more you reduce reactive superoxide free radicals, and that destroys cells. And the destroyed cells prematurely age the body. So it's that simple. Okay, it's not difficult. That's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break and come right back. Please stay with us. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Tomorrow, my entire show, Outside of Health, is going to be on economics. You know about my background in nutrition, public health science, uh, but you don't know about my background in economics. I don't talk about it. But when I see how bad the predictions are for the economists on everything that impacts our life in the financial matter, I felt that I should just do an entire classroom on the air for everyone. Now, I do a classroom on the, a classroom on the air every morning. I film it, and it goes up on Gary Nall YouTube and uh you can go there, it's for free, and download it. Yesterday I did it on Life Energies, a whole hour. And hopefully from each of these you can learn something that you can use when adapting it in a positive way into your own life, giving you different insights. I've learned a lesson in life, and that is, I don't tell people what to think, but rather how to think. Because if you know how to think, you'll find the issues in your life that you want to think about and that can help you grow. Right now, I see some people are growing, and probably, realistically, around 10 to 15% of the American population because we're so overwhelmed by crises. And even those who are not thinking about what's going on in Israel or Palestine or those in, in, uh, up in Niger or down in Niger 
and over in Ukraine, think about the things that matter to you every day. Can you pay your medical bills? Or will you go bankrupt? Can you pay your car loan, student loan, credit card debt, your mortgage, your rent, your electric bill? All of these are very intimate to us. And yet everything we're being told by the government and all of its agencies about our economy are lies. Now, these are not just mistakes in judgment, which you can be forgiven for. These are out-and-out premeditated lies. No one is telling you the truth about our economy. Well, in the outer sector, you have Gerald Solante. He tells you the truth. He's been right. Alan Greenspan, wrong. Jen Ellen, wrong. All of these people. Rubini, he's been right. So I'm going to do an entire program tomorrow about our economy. But right now, and, and everything about it. For example, I'm going to tell you the 10 worst things you can ever invest in and why. I'm going to tell you about all the companies that have gone broke and why they didn't have to go broke. They were well-run companies because we have a parasitic class in our society. They literally are economic parasites. I'm going to name names like Mitt Romney and Bain Capital, but I'm going to name all the names. And I'm going to show you the companies that you all used to shop at. Today, they're all bankrupt. Why? Because these greedy people, and I'll show you why they do it, how they do it, and how they play on people's weaknesses. I'll show you how much debt we have and where, and why we are bankrupt and have been bankrupt for the last 30 years. We're a completely bankrupt nation. We have no solvency whatsoever. And I'm going to go into the banks that you think you have your money in, that they're solvent. They're not. Not one is. And what's behind all of them? Derivatives. You're going to get a lesson in derivatives, options, shorts, naked shorts. I'm going to go through everything because I know some people in this audience are going to pay attention because they have limited resources and, and they don't want to spend that money in a way that would be misguided. So tell your friends, tomorrow they're going to get a completely different understanding of economics than anything that these fools in the media have told you. And they are fools. But they're well-paid fools. And they're famous fools. Isn't it amazing? In America, we're one of the most unique nations in that we take illiteracy at the cultural level, the historical level, the financial level, the health level, and we elevate it. So you fell up. It's just amazing. I'm going to read now a short article by someone who tells you the truth. His name is Ian Welsh. And it starts off with a little quote. I think this is a good quote. The horizon is not so far as we can see, but as far as we can imagine. Wow. So think of the people, maybe yourself, where you Everyone's looking in one direction and seeing the same gray, dull, limited existence. And you're looking in a different direction, both coming from the same background, starting equal, but you see as far as your imagination allows you. And how far do you allow your imagination? And that's where we begin this. Quote, why economists are wrong about how good the economy is, and regular people are right. I'm quoting Ian Walsh now. Practically every day I read an economist like Paul Krugman and or Brad DeLong talking about how the economy is the best ever, but ordinary people just don't get it. It must be idiots influenced by propaganda. Someone's an idiot on this subject, but it's not the ordinary people. Ms. Shedlock uh, had a good article on med uh, medical inflation, and then he shows two charts about how much an average family was paying for their medical care and how much that increased in just a few years. Well, it's astronomical. And how much each person pays within a family. Today, the average family pays $23,968, rounded off $24,000 a year just for medical insurance. But that's where everyone stops. That's where I begin. I've never counseled a person 
by ever discussing their symptoms, ever. Their symptoms are not relevant. The underlying cause that led to the symptoms and the, pro the progression of that into a pathology and what contributed to that pathology is where I begin and I reverse every one of those or help them reverse every one of those pieces of the puzzle until one day, lo and behold, they've improved or completely well or totally cured. It's a totally different way of looking at the human condition other than a broken body with a bunch of parts and you got to take this medicine, this procedure, nothing else is going to work. Your mind doesn't matter. Your emotions don't matter. Stress doesn't matter. Your diet doesn't matter. Exercise doesn't matter. Just do what we tell you. But did anyone ever think that maybe the entire medical industrial complex and the pharmaceutical industry that supports it is wrong on most of the things they do outside of emergency medicine? Because they are. They're dead wrong. And when I say dead wrong, when you have 550,000 people dying this year of cancer who only used orthodox therapy, and you've done that, let's just, short time, the last 20 years, within all of your lifespans, well, that means 10 million Americans died of cancer, with a half of that being from the treatment itself, because 50% of radiation and chemotherapy patients end up getting secondary cancer, which generally kills them, because there's no immune system after you destroyed it the first time around with radiation and chemotherapy, and your liver and your kidneys, etc. It's just common sense. You're not a scientist, you're not a statistician, not epidemiologist, just a normal human being. Come on my plane. Come on my plane. You're going to love the flight. It's going to cost you a lot. I'm going to take you from here, from New York, uh, from LaGuardia Airport to Newark, New Jersey. It's about a one-minute flight. I'm going to charge you $300,000. But I'm going to crash maybe 50% of the time, and you're going to die. You say, I don't think I want to take that flight. Okay, then why don't we have the same attitude about trusting those that we act as if they're so sacred in their profession, their deities, their priests of medicine? But we don't. But when we get a bill, a bill from going, and one of my friends did, went with a stomach ache, and nothing was done. They just said he had indigestion. But he sat there for two hours in the emergency room on a table, and they gave him a saline solution, which they didn't have to. He wasn't dehydrated. And that's about a dollar for the cost of saline solution. He got home. He got a bill for $12,000. And it was all legal. Well, who makes it legal? Again, don't start with the bill. Don't start with outrageously greed figures. Start with how it got there got there because the legislator that you believe, you know, the, the guy that, and the woman that looked look presidential, look senatorial, look... No, they're just human beings who are selling us their image and lying to us about everything because they never honor what they say they're going to. So they get paid off. They're bribed. They don't call it a bribe, but it's a bribe. We're going to pay for your next, uh, your next congressional governor uh, mayoral election. In return, here's what we want you to do. We're going to write a bill. It's called the Obama Act, or we're going to write a bill. And they write thousands of these bills over the last 50 years, and they're helped at the state level. It's the American Legislative Exchange Council. You've never heard of that most of the bills in your state come from them. Private 250 to 300 corporations. You've heard of all the corporations. You bought products from these corporations. These corporations want to make sure that their products, their services are green light, so they can make lots of money and not limited by any restraints, no constraints on them. And then when they go bad, nobody asks, how did this happen? How did we get a toxic chemical? How did we get a drug costing us $50,000 when in Canada it's, it's $500? How did that happen? Go to the source of everything. Go to the progenitor of everything. That's where you solve problems. You do not ever solve problems just at the symptom level. You take out a terrorist, we kill the terrorist. Yeah, yesterday. Did you see the pictures? Yeah, 400 people, almost all civilians and children, blown to pieces or injured. Hospitals overflowing. They didn't have room for, in the hospital alone for 120 bodies. They had to be wrapped outside. But by God, they got that one terrorist. I see. That makes a lot of sense. That's like chemotherapy. We're going to kill 100,000 healthy cells, but we're going to kill that 
one cancer cell. So the race is, can we kill enough cancer cells before we kill enough live cells and kill you? Why isn't that discussion ever had anywhere, anywhere in America, in any college, in any medical school? Oh, I forgot, because doctors are not taught how to be critical thinkers. They're taught robotics. Here's the protocol. Where did it come from? Big Pharma, but don't ask again. Okay, and you're going to be visited by their very attractive male and females who are going to buy you dinner, take you on first-class vacations to continuing education seminars, but don't worry about it. That'll be two hours of boring talk in the afternoon, but you're going to be there. Don't forget who refills for free your pharmacy. We give you the drugs for free. You sell them and make a profit. Isn't that nice? Sure is. But let's not talk about that. That's not the economics we want. We want a glowing. We've got the best medical system. We have a terrible medical system. It's accessible with the exception, one exception in medicine, emergency medicine. There were exemplary. Okay, that's good to know. How much of medicine is that? Mm, 10 to 12%. So you're telling me that 88 to 90% of medicine fails and kills people? Yes, yeah, the number one cause of death. Can you prove it? I've already proven it. Myself and five or four other uh, PhDs and MDs and research scholars, we spent five years doing the report called Death by Medicine. I did a documentary on it, did a book on it. But nobody bought the book. Nobody would read it. Nobody wanted to take issue with it. Okay, so we've got a big problem in just in economics and medicine. Four trillion plus dollars a year going in the pockets of people and very few people benefiting from it. That's right. So why do we call it a health care system? Why not a sickness maintenance profit system? Because that's the way we work in this country. I see. So the fact that a family has to make $24,000 a year just to cover medicine, which may end up not being good for them, and we don't talk about what's not good within medicine, we just call, can you afford it? Yeah, that makes no sense. That means the legislators who allow this are wrong, the government oversight agencies are wrong, they're all complicit, and the media is really wrong because the media would die tomorrow. All media in America would cease to exist tomorrow if you took away all the pharmaceutical advertising or the alcohol advertising or the fast food franchise garbage that they feed you. They don't feed me that. <laughs> you eat a lot of that. <laughs> Christ, man, Americans. Jesus, why can't we have a colonic of the brain? Just get in there and clear it all out and then create a new one. Because we're just not using basic common sense, good science, and awareness of the principles of life. Everything is a game. Everything is manipulation, and especially when it comes to economics. So on the one hand, I'm not questioning the $24,000 an average family has to spend at $6,575 a person. I'm questioning why in the world we don't have universal health care where that would cost zero. Let's not talk about that, Gary. Let's not talk about it. No. Too many people are making too much money. Do you think anyone's going to say, you know, Gary, over here, I'm raising my hand. You're right. We're a bunch of greedy, low-life degenerate bastards. Let's just face it. All right? The whole medical industrial complex is just, we're a bunch of pariahs. But... We create a great illusion, just like politics, just like the idiots and degenerates running for president. Do you know any that have not been sociopaths since Dwight Eisenhower? I don't. So we all the whole country is caught up into a mass psychosis of believing in illusions and images that are not real. The Democrats are not Democrats. The Republicans are not Republicans. Conservatives are not conservative. Liberals are not liberals. And you still believe in this crap. So that's on you. Just get out of the comfort zone you're in and start being critical of everything. And then you'll find the truth. So what this guy is telling us is the charts are all wrong. I'll give you just one example. Quote, you might be noticing a slight disconnect. The cost of medical care services, which is what you care about as a patient, are and then according to the Bureau of Labor Services, BLS, and, uh, and then you start looking at a different statistic that was created 
and it shows that the unemployment rate they were telling us is all wrong. It's at three point something percent, but the shadow statistics says it's 24 percent. Well, which is right. The status should have statistic. We have 24% of the American population are not gainfully employed. Why can't we just be honest about it? Because what would it tell the world? That we're a third world nation disguised as a first world nation, that we have massive opulence and excessive greed spending at a level never foreseen, not even by the robber barons? Who would want to be a part of that? Who would invest in that? So let's just lie about everything, officially. Quote, the inflation statistics at this point are completely bullshit, absolutely worthless in entire categories. He's saying that, not me. Quote, when it comes to how good people feel, two things matter. How many people have a job and how much money are they making? When economists look at wages, they look at inflation-adjusted wages. How much money or how much your money buys? So since the inflation numbers are garbage, the inflation-adjusted wages are garbage. Quote, a long time ago, Sterling Newbury gave me a rule of thumb, which is that people are fooled in generalities but not in specifics, which is to say people know what hurts or feels good in their own lives, though may be completely clueless about the generalities. But when you take a survey asking people how the economy is doing, what are you really asking is, how does it feel for you and people you know? The answer is crappy. I've personally seen in Toronto, Canada, food prices increase at least two thirds. If I buy the shopping basket I bought just three, two years, three years ago for $30, it now costs me 50, a lot. Things have doubled in price. Rent is up uh, for most people. And when I talk to other people, no matter where in the United States or Canada they're from, I hear the same thing. So I've never believed the BS talk about the best economy ever. Back in the 1990s, there was a rather good book entitled Economists Are Bad for Your Health. Economists are clueless. North of 99% of them missed the 2000s housing and financial bubble, for example. The advice they give on how to run economies is almost always not just bad, but terrible. At least 96% or so of the population. The most important requirement to understand the world is accurate perception. Truth, if you will. You, If you don't know the truth, you're going to draw the wrong conclusions. Economists believe the Bureau of Labor Statistics stats, so they, they're full of it. Add to the fact that the economists, uh, or economics as a discipline is mostly wrong about almost everything macro. And economists are out, of, out to lunch in a very dangerous way. Note that I predicted the financial crisis publicly in advance and spent years before that writing about the bubbles. All the necessary information was available. If you didn't think nonsense like markets being self-regulated and housing prices always going up, a correspondent once did a search to find out how many people predicted the crash in advance. He found 39. We have hundreds of thousands of economists. Alan Greenspan had thousands, the Fed. They all got it wrong. Where were all the economists who are supposed to understand well, the economy? Anyway, ordinary people are right. Their wages haven't increased enough to make up for the increases in key prices. They can, they can skip on a lot of things, but not food and shelter, and skipping on medical services is, not, is bad too. As for autos, well, most people need them or they can't get to work or go shopping. We have late imperial discount. The elites live in a world where everything is great, while ordinary people live in the real world, and it sucks, end quote. And with the exception of my own asides, those were the words from Ian Welsh. Good for you, Ian. Something to think about, and tomorrow we're going to go into this in great depth for the entire hour, and I'm going to give you a lot of positive input, but I'm going to give you a lot of statistics and facts. Please make note. Have something you can take notes with tomorrow, because I'm going to overwhelm you with statistics, all accurate. All right?
But now I'm going to take you to a clip, because there are a few other things I wanted you to be aware of. And by the way, for the person that wrote in and asked me, Gary, what about these diets that are zero oil diets? You know, zero. And uh, okay, I'm going to give you a complete discussion of what the actual science says about oils in the diet. That'll be on tomorrow's program. Now we're going to go to a clip. This is important because it's having someone who really knows what they're talking about, not some idiot general or uh, someone uh, at the military industrial complex who's going to go to work or is working now for one of the uh, industrialists in the armament industry who needs war in order to keep profitable. This is Scott Ritter, and he's telling what's going on and what could go on in the Middle East if we don't have ceasefires and stop this nonsense. This is, is Israel committing suicide? They are if they do this in Egypt. Scott Ritter from Redacted and Clayton Morris. Iran's proxies fire back at U.S. after airstrikes, says the New York Times. Uh, they clearly want this to be about Iran, of course. Meanwhile, Israel says it's bombed Hezbollah targets in Lebanon, the U.S. launching airstrikes in Syria, and Turkey says they're about to declare war on Israel if this further incursion continues. Are we heading for a regional war, or are we already in it? Let's ask former U.N. weapons inspector Scott Ritter, who's watching this very, very closely and not getting a lot of sleep these days. Scott, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So are we heading for a regional war? It seems with Turkey's declaration um, that they would be willing to declare war on Israel, the United States launching airstrikes in Syria and Iraq, that maybe we're already there? Well, we're definitely in a broader conflict than simply an Israeli-Hamas conflict. Uh, I think what we're seeing right now is if, if you view the Middle East as this giant pressure cooker, what Israel and Hamas are doing right now is just they're generating a lot of heat. There's a lot of pressure going up. So I think what we're seeing is pressure relief valves taking place. I mean, there's going to be uh, violence uh, in other areas related to this. The question is, can that violence be uh, controlled so that it doesn't uh, burst out of control? You know, what we see in, um, for instance, in Lebanon between Israel and Hezbollah is a deliberate um, cycle of uh, limited violence, where both sides, where Hezbollah has a need to strike. They, they have to politically, uh, but they don't want this to turn into a general war. So Hezbollah strikes, Israel retaliates, but the Israeli retaliation is limited in scope. So you have this slowly, slow escalation. The same thing in, um, in, in what's taking place in Iraq and Syria. Um, these militias are going to attack America. There's no doubt about it. The question now is, what is America going to do? If America overreacts, you have the danger of bringing in Iran. Uh, if America overreacts in Syria, you bring in Syria. So we're, we're looking at basically conflicts designed to relieve pressure. But you can only do that so much. If Gaza continues to heat up and, the, and generate more pressure than the relief valves can, uh, can release, then you're, you're going to have a, a general war. And it's, it's a very dangerous situation right now. Is Israel doing the right thing for themselves? I mean, in their brains, thinking about the protection of Israel, is this basically leading to the destruction of Israel, I guess is what I'm asking. By this massive incursion into Gaza, whatever unfolds and is unfolding in the West Bank, the massive PR campaign that, of course, Israel has spent years really promoting, uh, you know, birthright, come back to Israel, move back to Israel, become a part of Israel, become part of, uh, move to Tel Aviv. If you're Jewish, live in the United States, come here. This is where you belong. Have they really shot themselves in the foot with this, or is this... This is going to really buoy spirits, and people are going to start to want to really move back to Israel. No, I believe this is the end of Israel as it's currently defined. Um, it was already ending. I mean, remember, before this conflict began, you had hundreds of thousands of Israelis in the streets protesting uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, rewriting of basic law regarding the judiciary. Uh, the, uh, the Israeli president... Uh, saying we are on the verge of a civil war, not civil unrest, a civil war. Israel is shooting Israel. Israel is is destroyed. The, the, the What Israel defines itself as today, this right-wing um, Zionist entity, 
is dead. It just, you know, it's it's kicking, it's thrashing, uh, it's threatening to take down a lot of people with it, but it's over, it's finished. No matter what happens, Israel will never be the same. And it will not be as long as the, the current, as long as political Zionism exists, there will always be violence. And that violence will make Israel the least attractive place in the world for people to, to move to. I'm not saying that um, Israel, the nation state, uh, is finished. I, I don't believe it should be finished. I do believe that there is a there there is a state called Israel, but it cannot be uh, this this political Zionist state that exists solely upon feeding on the blood, literally, of Palestinians. That that is over, and it can't. The day of Israeli exceptionalism, likewise, is finished. If Israel is going to exist, and I believe it should exist. It needs to exist as an equal amongst equals. It can no longer be this literal Jewish supremacist state that dominates and intimidates others. That's uh, and, and what Israel is doing right now in Gaza is just accelerating the process uh, of that. Okay, that's just to give you a little glimpse into what he believes, and he is almost always accurate. He and Douglas uh, are are right spot on because they're not controlled by the military industrial complex or the media. I want to play another clip now. We're going to skip down here to the new Speaker of the House talking about the absolute evidence they have accumulated on the corruption of the Biden family, which everything that can be done within the Justice Department, the FBI official level, to stop that investigation, to to make it go away. But now, as of yesterday, guess what? They subpoenaed the banks, and now they're seeing Joe Biden that had over 66,000 messages that he communicated with the businesses of his son and brother that were done in secret. Those are all now public. They're become, they're getting them. Just one yesterday came in, showed another check for 10,000, no, 20,000. Let me see, no, excuse me, it was $10,000 to Joe Biden. And it came from his brother's wife. And that check then came from uh, his son. And then that check came from the son's uh, LLC, Limited Liability Corporation. But that money, that 400000 came from the Chinese government. So look at how they're trying to launder the money. Chinese government, now they have it. They've got it. It's over. It's over. Now, they got two checks thus far, and there are going to be a lot more checks for millions of dollars with 10% going, because what's 10% of 400,000? You know, uh, it's, and, and this is what's, that's the amount of money that ends up netting. But it shows you the trail it took from one to the other, to the other, to the other. All right? So there was one check, I think, for 40,000, another check for 200,000, another check for 10,000, but all these checks end up going through different people. And then what did you do for them? There's nothing shown that was done. What did you build? What did you create? Nothing. Here's the clip. Because the Democrats are panicked right now. They're panicked because it's impossible to cover up the inescapable conclusions of the last few weeks. Let me give you two of them. First, one, the hard evidence, Mr. Goldman and everybody, else now proves that the Biden family is hopelessly corrupt and has apparently engaged in a long pattern of extortion, bribery, influence peddling, and tax fraud, and staggering abuses of power. And number two, we're highlighting here today that we now know that a growing list of the most important executive branch agencies of the Biden administration are in on it. They've also been corrupted. They've been weaponized to help cover all this up, the first family's crimes. When we summarize all this stuff, it sounds like a premise of a dystopian novel or something, but it's actually happening right now on our watch. This is not conspiracy theories. This is evidence. Our hearing today is to put a spotlight on one more of these incredible avenues of unprecedented corruption and government cover-up. And here again, a federal court has just affirmed 
all that hard evidence. It proves that the White House, the Department of Justice, and the FBI, among other agencies, threatened and coerced the social media platforms to censor and suppress disfavored viewpoints and conservatives' social media posts online. I'm grateful we have with us today two individuals, Mr. Kennedy and Ms. Harris, who were directly impacted by that censorship, and a third, Mr. Sauer, who we're about to speak with, serving as lead counsel in the landmark lawsuit against the federal government on this issue. Let's talk facts. The American people are not aware of the magnitude of this case, Mr. Sauer, and its profound implications, because most of the mainstream media is in on it, too, and they're trying to bury the story. In brief, in May of last year, the attorneys general of my state, Louisiana, and the state of Missouri filed suit in U.S. District Court of the Western District of Louisiana this blatant censorship. They went after the blatant censorship by the Biden White House and nine of its federal agencies. Two weeks ago on Independence Day, the district court issued a truly extraordinary 155-page court opinion, a ruling granting the plaintiff's request for preliminary injunction. Mr. Sauer, your lead counsel in that litigation, you referenced some in your opening statement, but let's do it again here because they don't seem to be paying attention. Can you give a summary again of some of the key components of that opinion and the basis for it? I know you mentioned there were 82 pages of detailed factual findings, right? That is correct, 82 pages, 577 citations of the record evidence. That evidence is drawn from about 20,000 pages of the government's own communications with social media platforms and six full-length depositions of senior federal officials with first-hand knowledge of federal censorship practices. It's absolutely staggering. And now they've tried to bury this and say, well, the Fifth Circuit entered a temporary administrative stay. They granted a, an expedited briefing and oral argument, however, for August 10th. What, what's the impact of that? That's, isn't that routine practice in the Fifth Circuit? That's a direct quote from the recent Fifth Circuit decision, N. Ray Abbott, which is cited in my written testimony. It's legally incorrect, clearly legally incorrect to describe them as vacating the injunction, which has happened multiple times. They either don't know right. the law or, I don't know, they're trying to obscure the facts. That's a theme around here. The White House and the fellow Democrats disputed almost none of the factual findings in the court. Isn't that right? So far, we've had two emergency stay motions from the Department of Justice, one in the District Court, one in the uh, Court of Appeals. And what really struck me in reading those is they just don't dispute those 82 pages of factual findings. Almost none of them are directly disputed in what they've filed so far. So at the very beginning of this lengthy opinion, the court explains the staggering scope of the government censorship uncovered here. At page two, the court explains, quote, if the allegations made by the plaintiffs are true, the present case arguably involves the most massive attack on free speech in United States history. The court called it dystopian, Orwellian. How broad has this attack been? How many Americans have been uh, censored? Do you think? There's judicial findings again and again in the opinion of millions, millions of American voices silenced by these efforts. And it had profound impacts. We know we just saw the poll and the, and the data that's been entered here, facts, not conjecture, that it ch probably changed the outcome of the election. The court noted that they suppressed, among other topics, the Hunter Biden laptop story. And the court noted, not you, not me, not Republicans, that millions of Americans were not exposed to that story had they been we know they might have voted differently. We'll never be able to unwind history, but wow, I mean, the profound impacts. What are some of the other categories of speech that the government suppressed with its unconstitutional scheme? Well, uh, the court made findings on that. I just quote them. Opposition to COVID-19 vaccines, opposition to COVID-19 masking and lockdowns, the lab leak theory of COVID-19, opposition to President Biden's policies, statements that the Hunter Biden laptop story was true, opposition to the policies of government officials in power, all were suppressed. And that's just some examples, many other examples in the, in the court's findings and in the discovery in the case. I so wish I weren't out of time. I yield back. I to our WB audience, they're going to the news, but I'm going to continue because I'm going to give you the backstory here so you see a larger picture on PRN.live. First off, what he's talking about, no one in the mainstream media is paying attention to because if they told you this story, you're going to have doubts about the reliability of anything coming out of the White House, the Justice Department, the FBI. Dozens of whistleblowers from inside the FBI and the IRS who were first person, not hearsay, first person involved, found that Hunter Biden was breaking the law on multiple occasions and that they had evidence for his father while he was sitting as vice president. Then the, they would send this to the U.S. attorney, who would send it to the uh, attorney general, and then the attorney general had all these people who would say, we're not going to do that, we're not, and shut it down. They shut down all these investigations, and they said, this is just dis disinformation. It wasn't disinformation. 
These are long-term career uh, and nonpartisan uh, FBI supervisors and IRS supervisors. So we've had the evidence for years, but there was no prosecution. And then when there was finally a forced prosecution, they tried to sneak in there that he would be hit with a few misdemeanors, but all of the big cases would be dismissed because they allowed the statute of limitations on the time to bring suit to bypass. So it was now time over. You can't find him guilty on that. But all the other things he did that were should be listed as crimes like he should have signed in as an agent for foreign governments, not once. And also they found all these checks. If you're doing legitimate business, uh, company A or person A sends you a check and an invoice. Here's what I did for you. Here is what you're paying me. And now the balance is zero or whatever it is. No, not once was that the case. At no time in these hundreds hundreds of transactions was it stated, here's exactly what we're, you're paying me for, if it's my time, for what? You have no background in these fields. None. Not one day of, one hour of training. And yet you're making $89,000 a month for sitting on the board of Burisma. And then the Attorney General of, uh, of Ukraine is going to investigate corruption and he's investigating the people behind the ownership, the, the oligarchs of Burisma, and you're on the board, so he's investigating why you're on the board, why, why is your partner, Archer, on the board, making all this money every month when you have no background in energy at all. So why are you there? Well, because your father's the vice president and you need favors. And what about one of those favors when you and your partner, Archer, go to Dubai? Why'd you go to Dubai? To meet people from Ukraine and then call your father where witnesses were there and say, you got to get rid of this prosecutor on Burisma. And lo and behold, one week later, Joe Biden ends up in, in Ukraine before their parliament talking about overcoming corruption. And what does he do? He says, I have a check here for $1 billion to uh, the Ukrainian government, but I'm not giving it to you if you don't fire the prosecutor. You got six hours. His words, not mine. And then in front of the Council on Foreign Relations, he said, son of a B, they fired him. Yeah. So Ukraine got a billion dollars, a corrupt government. And the honest, non-corrupt prosecutor gets fired. And that ends the investigation to Hunter Biden and Burisma. So that, that is what was going on. And now all these other countries... And these are all countries that are known for their corruption, like Kazakhstan and China. And what exactly did you do in China that you got a check for $5 million? What? What did you do? So now the committee is bringing in the evidence and the subpoena of their bank accounts. And ah, now we find out that their mo- most of their communication was by a secret phone that Joe Biden had that no one knew. It was an official phone. So now they've got the records of tens of thousands of calls dealing with the business. So this game is over, but you wouldn't know it. And as the court just said, this is one of the worst crimes of censorship in history because anybody who wanted to talk about this was censored. And the FBI had people working inside of the major operations like Twitter. So when I would talk about Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and how to save people's lives, because I was quoting the actual science, that would be censored. If I had someone on the program, like Dr. Robert Malone, MD, PhD, who invented the science upon which everything was built uh, to do the vaccines, and he's against the vaccines now, though he got the vaccines, because he's seen the corruption in it and, and how toxic they are, that would be censored. It would be censored by every single major place out there. If I talked about helping cure people with AIDS and having the absolute irrefutable proof of it, and that means we could have saved millions of lives, millions of lives could have been saved had they simply come into my office and says, I'm a skeptic. I don't believe you. Prove to me that you've improved people's lives, kept 2,000 people from dying, and cured 18 of them completely. 
show me the evidence. We had abundance of evidence from the people themselves to the blood chemistries. None of that would be allowed. To the contrary, they use Wikipedia to say, oh, he's just an ace denier. That's what they've done. Now they're being caught. But will you see any of this in the liberal media? None. Not a word. So this is going on right now. So their entire house of cards is collapsing, just like on COVID, it's collapsing. On the World Health Organization, collapsing. Their need to try to get a treaty to control the world's health and therefore mandate what you're going to take and have penalties if you don't. This is collapsing on states requiring mandatory vaccines, even though those vaccines have been shown to be toxic and not, not valuable. Florida, they've just had a law passed that no mandatory vaccines of this vaccine in the state of Florida. So this is where we're at. And thank goodness for the honest whistleblowers. All right? Because these people risked everything to come forward and tell the truth. And oh, by the way, I got a committee hearing here I'm going to play on uh, next week where a whole group of whistleblowers came forward through the Department of Homeland Security and said tens of thousands, in fact, in this case, 85,000 children went missing who came into the United States and they were shipped out by the United States government to people. And one person has gotten 60, 60, I think 67 or 68 children thus far. Since when is it legitimate for a person to adopt 60 children? And they didn't do background checks, not one with the FBI. So organized crime is just thriving, making billions of dollars off open borders and the cartels bringing these young girls across to be sexually exploited. And we don't seem to care at all. And this has been exposed in a committee hearing, but you wouldn't know that. But I'm playing you the committee hearing. We're out of time, everyone. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.